0: The conventional wisdom is that guitar music exploded in 1991 with the release of Nirvana's Nevermind, and that countless musicians who'd been toiling away minding their own business in the underground scene found themselves suddenly breaking into mass acceptance and success. But for many of those who'd been immersed in the grimy underground existence of guitar music in the late 80s, the advent of grunge and its moment in the mainstream was a reason to pause, to reconsider, and look onward into the possibilities that music might present in the way punk had been for many a decade before. Alex Newport is well-renowned as a talented producer and mixer for amongst others Death Cab for Cutie, At the Drive-In, Sit in Colour and the Mars Volta. He knows his way around a guitar and I think one of the reasons he understands loud dynamic records so well is that during the 90s he went from wielding sludgy riffs himself in the band Fudge Tunnel to seeking more complex unconventional sounds in the music around him. One of the records he found particularly inspiring was Tricky's 1996 album Pre-Millennium Tension. What follows is the story of a musician discovering sound, discovering ideas, and realizing that the dark, mysterious corners of music making could not only help shape him as a person, but also hone his ear as a producer in order to make better, more sonically engaging records. I'm in Los Angeles, in the hills. Not the Beverly Hills, the different hills.
1: These are more indie rock hills.
0: The indie rock hills of LA. And I'm with Alex Newport, who I've known for a few years now. And we're gonna talk about Tricky's, kind of his second record. There was one around this time that technically wasn't like a solo record, right?
1: That's right, He 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 did a record, which is basically Tricky, but it's, he called it Nearly God. Mm. I'm not quite sure why but it was a compilation thing where he he was working with quite a few different people so maybe he decided to to keep that separate, separate it off like, right pre millennium yeah. tension mm. is technically his second yeah.
0: you you st- had a recording career that started earlier than this like before the 90s you were were you signed like in the 89 um or not
1: yes right about that time 89 yeah, eighty nine.
0: So you're you're in a good position to kind of look back at the whole period and see, see, you know, how things were changing. Right. When did you start playing at all, any kind of music?
1: Well, you know, as a teenager, mid '80s mm-hmm. was my foundation of of playing, you know, punk rock and post punk stuff. But um, Fudge Tunnel started in earnest in '88. Right. And got signed off the first demo. Hadn't you know, I don't know? We played like a couple of shows, maybe.
0: Do you think that um, it was a, a kind of time where bands were being signed on the back of things? Because this, this is pre Nevermind, isn't it? So, oh, yeah, that kind of sludgy, heavy rock mm-hmm. w- was not being played on the radio so much at that point, was it? No,
1: not at all. I think we were fairly lucky We, in as much as we signed to a record label in London, Vinyl Solution. Okay. And so a lot of our formative shows were in London pubs. And we sort of fell in with a crowd of really cool bands and really cool people like okay. Silverfish, who sort of took us under their fishy, silvery
0: wing. Oh, um, great lost band from the early 90s. Yeah, amazing band. Yeah. And
1: and super cool. And, and, you know, we had a lot in common with them, if not musically. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of fun. So we would we would get to play a lot of these sort of trendy underground London gigs. And not so much Enemy, although they were there, but it was like a big thing with the sound, Smag. And of course there wasn't a name for it and they needed a name for it, right? So the shows were usually in Camden. So it became known as the Camden Lurch. So this was like... British grunge before there was a name for it. Yeah. You couldn't really pogo to it cuz it was too slow
0: and dirty. <laughs> yeah. Um so what you could do was lurch. Lurch. So it was the it was the Camden lurch. It's uh, I think of it as this almost sort of mythical indie rock scene that probably really wasn't a scene, you know, in the way that none of those scenes were ever really kind of like scenes. But if you read Melody Maker and Sounds and and The Enemy You'd imagine that this was a great scene happening. Yeah, of course. And, you know, the reality was just dirty pubs and loud bands and some of them would would have been good and some of them would have been probably pretty shocking.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, that's exactly how it was. And and like in Nottingham, people were perhaps impressed that we were selling out Camden Falcon, you know. <laughs> Camden Falcon is like, it was the size of this room. It's like 10 foot by 10 foot. Yeah and that doesn't even include the stage yeah. so you know to sell it out is like yeah we got 50 people in there but you know for us it was so much fun it was it was brilliant and like I, I, that we had no illusions about it being some big scene who cares you know yeah. i mean a sold out show is a sold out show like 60 people or sixty thousand, is' it's still good it, you know i don't
0: care <laughs> <laughs> i suppose all these things together just create this idea that there's something going on and there's a momentum happening. Maybe the next show is a little bit bigger and and so on.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Fast forwarding a bit to 1996, which is, you know, a lot changed in alternative music in the interim. How long did Fudge Tunnel last? When did you- We broke up in 95. Okay. Were you starting to get involved in engineering and producing at that time?
1: I was because, I mean, I was already working on the Fudge Tunnel records. Mm -hmm. So that was in the very early 92 maybe. But I didn't really take it too seriously at the time because we were touring. We mm. were you know, in the album cycle, touring cycle, so there wasn't that much I could do. So it wasn't really until after the band split that I became a lot more serious about it and actually like, had time to work with other
0: bands. How do you feel that things changed in the first half of the 90s? Obviously a lot changed for you because you went from being an artist to becoming a producer Mm -hmm. do you think things changed a lot over that period i think things
1: changed tremendously because there was sort of this wave you know the very early 90s there was all this music that was coming up that was counterculture that was very cool and interesting sonic youth you know that kind of new york scene there was some of the seattle scene that we knew about there was the chicago scene with the more noisy industrial bands and there was a lot of European bands that were that were really interesting as well. Mm. But they were very much underground. And then, of course, in 92 was when Nirvana kind of broke through. Really? At first, it was great because then you got all these bands like Melvins were getting signed to a major label and even Fudge Tunnel, yeah.
0: you know. It opened a door. Yeah, it kind
1: like of that. opened the door to uh, potentially could have could have been a good thing. Yeah. It could have been a good thing, and then ultimately ended up in Bush and Stone Temple Pilots and and Live and Creed, you know. So you got this huge wave of '92 of your you know Mud Honeys and Killdozers and and Sonic Youth, Nirvana, and and so many great bands. And then, very quickly, this sort of gets taken over by the mainstream, repackaged by the major labels into some bands that were perhaps a little bit less creative
0: and that's the stuff that you still hear constantly on american radio (laughs) right
1: yeah of course for me and i think for a lot of my friends it it definitely got to that point fairly quickly of becoming very disillusioned with Mm. that that whole thing and the grunge stuff started dying down and there was there was quite a lot of indie rock around that was really good that i liked a lot of it for me personally there was also a period of disillusionment with guitar music with the whole like rock band thing
0: well i mean it kind of stands to reason you know if you were making this kind of noisy racket in 88 89 which is when Nirvana was were doing the same thing in tiny rooms in the west coast of the USA that by 93 when their second record came out everyone was had a, had enough of it especially the people who were doing it first you know the mid 90s It was, I guess, a bit of a sea change. I mean, the British point of view and look at Britpop. But this record is really not about that kind of thing at all, is it? Absolutely not.
1: I did love a lot of the Britpop stuff. I loved Oasis and especially Blur, who I'm still a huge fan of. So all those records were big for me and, you know, I... At that time, I just stopped really listening to anything that was sort of grungy or heavy because I just felt like, God, I've just had like seven years Mm. of Mm. playing and listening to all that sort of stuff, and I just need a change. Mm. Even that stuff, even Blur, you know, I mean, I played the hell out of all those records and then still found myself sort of looking for something really different. I just really felt like I needed something dramatically different. To shake me up musically there was actually a couple of records one of them was the dj shadow album mm-hmm. introducing which mm. was a huge album because i'd never heard yeah. anything like
0: that before yeah.
1: and that's a fantastic record but with as it's instrumental it has a somewhat limited listening appeal to me okay all right i don't know why i've always felt that way about music that yeah. doesn't have vocals it's not that I'm always like that big on vocals or, mm-hmm. or lyrics even particularly, but something about it to me, it lacks a human element without the, the vocals.
0: I suppose it can, it can sort of function at a sort of particular sensory level. You can technically put that kind of record on in the background, can't you? And it still has the same sort of musical impacts. Right. You know, that's one of my favorite records from that period. There's so much going on in it, so much texture. Mm -hmm. It comes from that sort of Mo Wax school of instrumental hip-hop. And and arguably, some of this tricky stuff does, although I think probably his frustration, from what I can tell about being in Massive Attack, was that he couldn't get his lyrical ideas across. Right. So this record, and tricky as a kind of artist, comes out of that Bristol scene, doesn't it? The Massive Attack and Portis Head. Right. And it's got a very different lineage to punk rock and and to Britpop, doesn't it? It
1: does. But the thing that I had found that sort of shocked me was I was discovering the same emotions with what he was doing on that album. The same exact vibe of that sort of rage, disillusionment. Mm -hmm. Um, and very dark humor that had appealed to me in all the early kind of hardcore and post-punk okay. bands. And and to me, it was kind of a natural extension of that. And, you know, there was a lot of records that I liked at that time. And the early Massive Attack albums are all great, but still very much poppy and mm-hmm. and not really exploring too much of the, the darker side lyrically. And even Tricky's first album, Maxing Key, which is a fantastic album i loved it but it hadn't grabbed me Mm. mood wise right i definitely had to be in a certain mood to be able to listen to Mm -hmm. that you're in that mood when you want to listen to something challenging and something tense but not just your average sort of guitar bashing thing
2: So to catch up with me Come to feet, I talk to him I wanna lie She looks at me I love her heart Wanna be rich and fat How do I validate that? with my eyes Makes me feel like a mouse Do I retaliate to that? Can I rest my head on your chest and dribble? You know the rules I speak in little Pain is somewhere on the line Somewhere on the line It takes courage, I just to be single When you get older, your body will do so good learn so quick The best of for a relationship I'm this she kid in Moscow I said if you're in love, let go my hand now The older I get, the more confused I am The older I get, the older I am Damn you, Jesus, they want more pleasure to so we'll Damn just Jesus They want more pleasure too so.
3: Show it.
0: If I think of my parents, to take an example, I can't imagine them ever wanting to listen to something that's that's moody and tense and sort of challenging. Right. <laughs> so we're not all searching for that in music, but you know, a lot of us are, and it's interesting what you would choose in that context.
1: Right. Well, that's an interesting point. It's like I've had this conversation with my mom where she cannot understand my my desire to appreciate music that's angry or tense or, you know, and to me, it's it's totally simple. It's cathartic. Mm. You know, everyone has those feelings of a darker side of them. And to me, when I listen to that kind of music, it helps me get them out. Mm. So it's purely cathartic. And I usually come away feeling much better. I mean,
4: mm.
1: you know, it's like going to a great punk or metal show and, mm. you know, going nuts. And then you leave there feeling totally relaxed mm. and, and you feel good. The
0: opposite of what the mainstream media at, at times has sort of painted that kind of music to represent. And we're going through that again, you know, the way that aggressive or challenging music is sort of depicted by mainstream media or right wing media or whatever. It's an utter red herring as as to what that r- music is really about. Yeah, of what, course. It's what the expression is about
1: misunderstanding. The same thing that the the jazz guys were suffering from in the in the fifties. You
0: know that jazz music was evil. This dates back to the Middle Ages when wasn't it the fifth interval was described as the devil's interval and oh the flatted fifth, yeah, and anything that had that in it was the music of the devil you mm. know it's i guess it's a- always been there in, in culture
1: yeah ironically one of the intervals that i've probably used more than <laughs> any other <laughs> interval in in my life yeah it's the black sabbath interv- interval interval yeah. you know um yeah.
0: <laughs> i can remember when i first started playing the guitar in a very rudimentary way and i discovered that shape on the guitar which on a guitar is Going down a string, but only one fret or something isn't right, it right. that had an odd shape to it, and I remember thinking oh, that's a nice discord or whatever yeah. that, that creates, and we're all still working with that shape after all these years, yeah, that first tricky record, which is the sort of the big one that kind of was successful at the time,
1: yeah, it was hugely successful
0: arguably was was one of the records that kind of originated the idea of trip hop, another name for something that's a bit spurious, but it seemed like tricky himself. Objected almost more than anyone else to that idea of a coffee table trip hop music right and that this record is his attempt to sort of really contradict that idea and do something that's the opposite of easy music yeah absolutely that, that it's challenging and dark and different and so that clearly struck a chord then
1: yeah absolutely yeah. I mean there was there was hints of what he was doing on the first album definitely mm but it's it's way popular and apparently he really took exception to the to the label uh, you know yeah. i mean no artist wants to be wants to be labeled that easily so it's totally understandable but he you know i think he specifically wanted to create a reaction against that and and did it very very well
0: do you remember when you first sort of came across this record specifically this
1: yes one. I, um, I think I just moved over to the States I was living in LA you know it was it, it was definitely a strange time for me because I got divorced and I moved to another country at the same time the band that I'd been in for seven years had just ended and so there's definitely a, a period of what am I doing and where am I going dislocation and, yeah definitely this tricky album had come around just at that right time where it really echoed a lot of what was going on for me a lot of a lot of questions and a and a kind of darker mood mm. you know and again in a cathartic way it was really really good for me the thing about uh, about pre millennium tension though is he was able to combine this this sort of rage and disillusionment with just these killer grooves mm. It, it has a lot of elements of, of punk in it. It has a lot of anger in it. But it's also really bloody soulful at the same mm-hmm. time. I mm-hmm. think that was the thing that struck me as well. Like, God, it really grews and, and I can say the same thing about Massive Attack. And mm. a, a lot of their stuff is great in that way. But it doesn't, a lot of the Massive Attack stuff just didn't quite have that edge that I was looking for at that time. Mm. And
0: perhaps that's what Tricky was thinking too was it i wouldn't say big here but was it like easy to hear tricky here where would you hear tricky here god i don't know i don't think it was big
1: here at all i mean the first album got a fair amount of attention mm. but it was never like huge over here at all mm. it, it was very much an underground
0: thing here you f- were following british music even though you were over here or it was oh, a yeah. recommendation or, oh yeah or yeah
1: well you, you know like i said i, I really liked the first album mm that he did I knew he was going to do something special so I was sort of waiting for this one okay
0: yeah I mean I was listening through to this record initially sort of thinking about this as sort of being a British record if you Mm -hmm. think of how it's the scene that Tricky came out of but it's not really because you know there's like so many sort of samples that come from like American hip-hop and Mm -hmm. it's a little more universal than a lot of records that we think of from that time that are very British yeah, sounding.
1: I know he was, he had moved to New York at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely more of an international and I think some of it was influence. made in
0: Jamaica. Oh, that's right. It was recorded in Jamaica. Yeah, It's a real melting pot of sort of cultural ideas mm-hmm. that you wouldn't put on straight away and go, yeah, this sounds British. I mean, even his vocal delivery is so kind of odd and whispery at times or mm-hmm. kind of scary even you don't attach it to nationality really it's got a universal in a way i'm surprised that he wasn't wasn't bigger here you know than he was although this is kind of it's a difficult record i think yeah well, I, I mean i
1: think he was there were other records that probably did better commercially than this one
0: yeah and but those were the records that he was trying to go against you know that's that sound that a lot of bands Made quite commercial, mm-hmm. I would imagine that were, were anathema to him. You know, he wanted right. to make something that had depth and kind of danger. And well, that's the thing, he, he
1: did make records after this one that were more commercially successful, right. but they're not as good. <laughs> <laughs> so, are they ever? Uh, <laughs> right, you know, that's the artist's quandary,
0: isn't it? This is something that comes up, you know, when I discuss 90s records. An artist signed to Ireland in the nineties would have had a lot of leeway to do exactly what they wanted to do, you know? Oh yeah, audience, absolutely. Especially
1: this guy. Career uh, control. Yeah. And
0: yeah. I read an article where he's saying the reason he called the first record, he named it after his mother mm. was because he could. And it was a tribute to her to be able to see her name everywhere, you know?
1: Well, I think in, in this case and with Island records at that time, they were smart enough to, to let him do what he needed to
0: do. Mm. I just wonder how this, what it did for his career, you know, could he have been bigger than he was
1: well his his first album i think was so successful mm. that it, it was going to be very difficult mm. to follow it anyway i think that he did the exact right thing by by doing something that would just please him more yeah than attempting to be you know to follow up that success and then i think in the years that followed he had a little bit of a bit of a dip of commercial success I think he moved around a lot he Mm -hmm. moved to LA and I think he moved to Paris Mm -hmm. Um, and funnily enough I actually kind of lost touch with his music as well around that time and actually only recently rediscovered him he did an album recently called mixed race Mm -hmm. which I bought it thinking you know well there's been a long time since pre Millennium Tension and Maxine key and you know I, I don't know how much uh, I'm going to be interested in this or, or how much of his past is going to be in there. Is it going to be anywhere near as good? I was actually blown away by how good it is. Right. I feel like he's come full circle now and he's bringing the same quality of writing and producing okay. that he was on these early albums. Yeah.
0: Did this record have any sort of you know inspiration for you in terms of taking forward production or was this something that you... It was a path you were headed on anyway. You were just, you know, like any music fan soaking up good music around Mm -hmm.
1: you? I think it was a little of each. I I mean, I think I knew that I was looking for something like this to come along Mm. and hearing the DJ Shadow album, Mm. this Tricky album, OK Computer, these were all sounds that I'd sort of had rattling around in my head and just hadn't heard it come out on records before.
0: At this time, it doesn't sound like you had a kind of ambition to carry on like a recording career, is that wrong? No, you just find yourself kind of more taken up by the production? At that
1: time, I was more interested in taking ideas and working with other people in the studio with them than I definitely needed a break from playing music. So I was much more interested in production technique.
0: You know, everything I have read about how this record was put together and how Tricky just worked, maybe from the beginning and still does, I don't know, seems to sort of be the opposite to how people tend to make records which is to write songs and then use the studio to sort of somehow express that or polish it mm-hmm. whereas this record he would go in with just a few records and snippets of things and have an engineer kind of pitch shift them so they fit together or like make some kind of piece out of other bits of music oh yeah and I, then i'm construct sure the song sort of from there
1: i'm sure a lot, lot of the songs he had no idea what he was doing i mean i've heard stories about sitting there going through like thousands of albums like trying to find a the right beat to start with and and that kind of stuff yeah It's crazy. It's, it's incredible, but you know, I think the thing that struck me about it like I liked a lot of hip-hop stuff and mm. you know, and I really loved Public Enemy and sometimes that you know that stuff was a little bit too political for me at mm. sometimes in the same way that a lot of punk rock was mm. like because the problem with being very political is it comes across as very very serious and and it should be but it's not always what you want to listen to Mm. you know and so a lot of the public enemy stuff was was too hard for me was too serious Mm -hmm. and and so when i heard the tricky stuff here's this guy doing the same quality of loops and beats but they're so jagged in a bizarrely soulful way i mean Mm. there's the first song that comes up, um, pre-millennium tension, which is called "Vent," mm. the beat doesn't quite work. There's like two <laughs> beats going at the same time, right. and they don't quite work. And it's the sort of thing that most people would just sit there and go, "Yeah, okay, it's not working. Forget it." You mm-hmm. know. But somehow he's able to put these beats together, slice st- a bass line underneath it, and then sing on top of it, and all of a sudden. It just gels into this groove. There's a lot of his songs that are like that. And Mm. that was a huge thing for me with learning, you know, producing things where things that don't always necessarily work together at first can be made to, or the imperfection in something like that is actually what makes it work, you know? It was a huge moment
2: for me. (laughs) He's the one makes me feel these ways. He's the one needs some race. Can't stand to feel hate to film. Gone insane Hijack a plane Don't push me Because I'm close to the edge I'm Trying hard To lose my head I Can't hardly breathe I've been insane has my Ventilator can't hardly, Can't hardly breathe Can't hardly breathe Can't hardly
3: breathe I'm the one i Who hurts his lips. Watch him stop breathing Watch him Watch him. The leave i the i take your only if happy, 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 can happy, happy,
0: day i love like the accidental moments in any kind of music making mm-hmm. where you play the wrong note and suddenly it's the right note or you just somehow do something by accident that you you had no intention to and those moments seem to be the most sort of honest when you're making any kind of music mm-hmm. and this is an early example of kind of technology being the vehicle for the songwriting you know right sampling isn't it whereas now you have Logic. You playing straight into a laptop. You might just loop up a couple of bars, and then suddenly something comes out, which you're using as a motif for a song. Right. This well, began kind of in with hip hop, I guess, and this is very much a hip hop record in in that tradition, mm-hmm. assembling loops, beats, yeah. ideas. But that's
1: that's one thing about the '90s in particular, where you had that technology of sampling which was just advanced enough to be able to, you know, you could sample maybe three or four seconds yeah. at the most. yeah. Just enough to be able to put together loops and beats, but not enough to be able to make it perfect. Like, yeah. I don't know if you could make a record like Introducing or no. Pre-Millennium Tension now, because, you know, as soon as something goes in the computer and, you know, you go, oh, that loop doesn't quite line up, so I'm just going to, like automatically you know you change it, the
0: length of it in able to,
1: it just automatically yeah. does it for you <laughs> the technology is so good now that it's so much harder to make mistakes and if you do make a mistake it's way too easy to to repair it yeah. and therefore ruin what could have been something really great and i think that's what i love about that particular period of the 90s in hip-hop and whatever tricky wants to call his music we can't call it trip-hop where there's that element where something's not quite right, but it works. Mm. Like, it's not perfect. So those records introducing and the Massive Attack records, and in particular for me, this Tricky album, it has way more soul than a lot of stuff that I hear these days because those imperfections are intact. The grooves are just a little bit off.
0: Mm. It
1: it just feels really
0: nice. For me, the equivalent record would have been introducing. Mm -hmm. Although a friend of mine had... I think one or, one or two of the 12 inches that DJ Shadow put out before introducing Proper, where I first heard that idea of, you know, clearly he's taking a bass line from one record and a beat from another and then somehow like a flute sample and then a vocal and it creates a song. I was transfixed by that idea that it's found music, isn't it? It's right. The creative act isn't coming just directly out of you with a melodic part or something you're finding things and constructing them into something utterly new that's never happened before. It didn't, as I imagine with a lot of people, inspire me to go out and buy some decks and become a DJ or whatever. (laughs)
1: Right? Yeah, it can influence you in ways that you perhaps didn't even realize at the time. Mm. I know that's the case for me. I certainly wasn't about to go out and buy turntables and. it. Well, I already had a sampler, but, you know, like I wasn't attempting to make music like that. But the way that it influenced me, my thought patterns and the the way that I approached producing music
0: was huge. What did you make of that band Disco Inferno? They came out around this time. In a way, they sort of remind me of the music they were making was sort of coming from the same direction of, of what you're doing in Fudge Tunnel. But they were using a sampler. Were, were you into that band? Oh, I've never heard them. i have to oh. check it out. Okay, yeah. It's an interesting sort of missing... They're link. British? Yeah, hmm. British band. Okay. It's kind of almost in the vein of what the beta band sort of went on to do, which right. was, again, sort of combining samples and, like, live playing. But they mm. were doing it in the early 90s. Check those records. There's a couple. I forget what they're called. Disco Inferno. We take you to the Hotel Martinette in Brooklyn...
4: Where Bobby the program of you are lovely being brave people, the story starts down at the thumbs of the night the hour. With ships carrying mans over arm to arm, so they fortune in We've been refused so many times we lost count. So It was only as we got close To the same was an old man We collapsed As people rushed by They kicked in our With that faith We passed the school books They were religious fanatics They pushed their way in burn the heretics. heritage Books have been published. Yeah, I never read them But I didn't know Cause I knew I was in them What are you doing anyway? When you've got a girl You never lead your strength We passed the school boy It was a counting plot I asked that there was a boy I wish you could help me But I watched just to we an alleyway we to see some alignment You it was a And realized should have been a So we came on the giving our hands we left Very quick the way We ran away To a dinner went to a table And just sat stay. We're trying to place So we're out. We're cares Then the just came to take your I I asked, "Are oh, your English. Did you move there by choice?" She looked at the so I told her a story. Did you answer? you must have gone on the ferry, did you never think of? I'm not
1: there's so many ways to achieve a similar result i mean it was hip hop in general impressed me right from the first moment i heard it because there was especially public enemy where it was like god that's that weight that heaviness mm. and that aggression that mm. i previously thought could only be done with drums and guitars mm. and here was these guys without a single guitar yeah. or instrument and at that time i remember like a A few of my friends that were musicians was sort of, the whole sampling thing took on a very pejorative quality, you know, it's kind of, that's what you do if you can't play an instrument, Mm. you know? And I don't think I ever really agreed with that. There's a huge talent, I can speak from experience, how difficult it is to do something like what DJ Shadow Mm. did or what Tricky does. Yes, you're taking other people's beats or found Mm. sounds or whatever, but being able to have the foresight and the skill to put these totally unrelated parts together and to make them
0: work. To hear is, how is they can huge. Yeah, to marry yeah. up.
1: That is absolutely huge. And it, it's not a musical mm. skill in the same way as being able to play a violin. Yeah. But it is definitely a musical skill.
0: For me on introducing there's that song Changeling, which is it's the first time I heard a hip hop beat that wasn't kind of in four, Mm -hmm. it's in seven or something, that beat. That I thought was fascinating, that you could do hip-hop in weird time signatures. You know, you mentioned about how sampling was interpreted by musicians. You'd think a record like Pre-Millennium Tension would have opened the door for a lot more artists that were in this vein of sort of dark, you know, stream of consciousness and weird sounds. And I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, maybe I just didn't.
1: I think it's true. I think it it just took Portishead fifteen years to come up with it when they, when <laughs> when they did their third album. Yeah. You know, that album which is also an incredible mm. album, but to me has so many echoes of pre millennium tension mm. on it, intentional or not, but it's got that same vibe of imperfect grooves that somehow work but shouldn't. A lot of very dark vocals, very dark subject matter and found sounds to yeah. it.
0: But even DJ Shadow really never was able to sort of move on and create something that could innovate again. I mean, no. uh, there's very few artists, I guess, that can innovate. And I don't think once. Tricky did either. No, yeah. I
1: mean, he's made some records since that album that have been great, but I, they haven't innovated in that way.
0: Have you had experiences in the studio where you've worked with people who've come from almost sort of a non-musical perspective and you think about that time and then what you went on to do as a producer? Do you hear that in any of the records that you've worked on or artists that you've worked with?
1: Well, curiously enough, just this last month, I've been working with a band called Wolf Prize, an L.A. bass band. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of the songs we were sort of trying to figure out the drum beat, they don't have a traditional drummer. In fact, they don't have a drummer at all. Mm -hmm. So a lot of songs we were trying to figure out how can we put a beat in here that's interesting, that's unexpected, but still gives the song the Mm. groove that it needs. There was one particular song that we ended up using where we'd just taken a beat, played on a floor tom. I put it through this harmonizer, which shifts it down like five semitones or something. Mm-hmm. At the minute I heard it, I was kind of like, this sounds like something like pre-millennium tension. Okay. And at some point, I think I mentioned to the band, you ever heard of Tricky at all? And mm-hmm. the singer said, oh, I love Tricky. So there you go. Yeah, I'm sure there's been plenty of examples in the past, but that's the most recent one mm-hmm. that I can think of. It wasn't until it was done that I actually realized right. where the influence was coming from. Yeah. It wasn't something that I was setting out to do. I think I was just kind of searching for something. Mm. Maybe that's the way Tricky works. He just sits there and searches for something until it finally pops in. There's been times when I've been working with musicians who definitely had their own thing going on that maybe weren't incredible musicians in the strict conventional sense of the word but that had ideas where there was something magic there mm. and those are always moments when I always try to sit and think okay how can we maximize that how can we bring that out and and how can I let their you know the, the fact that they're playing a little bit off how can I magnify that mm. and make that into something really cool
0: you know I suppose it's nice to be able to get outside of the music and not not always be thinking in a super kind of regimented kind of musical way yeah. about notes and things mm-hmm. to be able to stand outside of the music and go you know there's something that's a bit indefinable about well, what's going on here and not constantly sort of training yourself to like tune it or pitch it or um or make it sort of conform to something that's understood in a certain kind of music right or uh, i mean that's the, that's the
1: the line i walk every day as a producer, you know, is when is something off and just really needs to be redone or fixed, or when is something off and it sounds great because it gives that human element, it gives that vibe that you're looking for, you know. My thing is always trying to capture the vibe, that's what people relate to on records, you know, so I try not to get too hung up on the perfection thing.
0: It's interesting for me because before I worked with you, I didn't listen in the same way to you know intonation on notes and things and you know I know different producers have different attitudes to that I'm guessing your attitude to it as well you know if we can at least start from a place of tunefulness with the notes then you can work out from there but if you're just out of tune and you don't really realize it then you're, you're kind of on a back step right
1: right it's different every time because there's sometimes you hear stuff that's a little bit out or something's a little bit sharp and you go, oh, it's fine. It mm. doesn't really change the vibe. Mm. Then there's certain things, especially when you have like a distorted guitar and distorted bass and they're hitting the same note at the same time. But if one of them is out, to me, I like all of a sudden I hear all, all the power is gone. Mm. You, you get this kind of wobbly tone that doesn't doesn't sound quite right. Mm. So there, there are certain spots right where I think it's like. You want to have that that pure tone to to represent the power of the these notes being hit.
0: There's just so many approaches to it, aren't there? The more that's going on, in a way, you can kind of put your foot off the accelerator and let the band kind of do the generate the noise. But mm. I would imagine like the real hard music to record is less doing like a Joanna Newsom record where it's just her vocal and a. And oh no, a harp. that's
1: no, that's by far the easiest. Like, oh really? <laughs> from the less there is going on. The easier it is to record because you you have all that space mm. and you can you can fill that but space with with reverbs or room sounds sure. and okay. it when it works great for me, the hardest the hardest stuff to record is the stuff where it's very intense dense. a lot of notes, very dense because like in some cases, yes, you just want it to be a big wall, but you know when you're making a record and you want it to stand up to repeated listens. You don't want to have 50 minutes of, like, the same wall of noise. You've yeah. got to have some, some definition or variation in there. So those are the ones where, okay, we need to really get in here and try to define certain yeah. things to make it worth listening to. I
0: mean, I think of Kurt Ballou as being someone who's really good at that. He you know, is, Whether or not you're that. into that kind of extreme... Metal. A lot of the stuff he works on is he has an ear for what works in that context and how to separate stuff. He's fantastic when it's at dense.
1: getting stuff very dense and very huge, but at the same time, everything's defined and clear. Yeah, it's yeah. that is very very difficult to do.
0: Yeah, there is a kind of soulful side to this record which very I haven't much. really touched on. The obvious example of that is "Make Me Wanna Die." Mm-hmm. Martina, who's like half the sound of Tricky on these first couple of records. Yeah, she? absolutely is singing those like, top lines and doing really nice, sweet things with with melodies. On this record, she's kind of rapping a lot more in a way, isn't she? And taking some of the vocal duties in that way. But you hear a lot more of Tricky's own voice on this record. Yeah. It's, and eventually yeah. he stopped working with her, didn't he? And, and, and she stopped being on the records. Mm-hmm. Make Me Wanna Die is a, very, it's a song that really stands out on this record. It sounds very different, I think.
1: It is very different much less aggressive and a bit more melancholy, Mm. but it still has a groove.
0: The guitar tones that are on this record are are not the traditional guitar tones that you and I sort of probably listen to and spark off necessarily, the way they're played. Mm -hmm. Again, they've got this almost kind of found quality to the sounds. Yeah. There's this one, and I forget which the other one is, where it's got a very prominent sort of guitar part. Is it Bad Things? uh, Bad Things. There's a kind of a, a, a way he approaches all instruments. It's not prejudiced towards any kind of way of working. It's mm-hmm. hip hop in that sense. It, all sounds are equal. You know, it doesn't matter whether somebody's playing them or you found them on a record. Or, well, look at the guy. What. He
1: got he got playing guitar on this album. It's the guy from Mama's Boys. You remember them? I don't remember. Is they're like a hair rock band from Ireland. <laughs> I just think that's brilliant, you know. Somebody was probably like, yo, tricky, you should get like Sonic Youth or yeah. something. And he's like, nah, fuck that. Like I got this mate in Ireland. He used to be in some band. It'd be alright, you know. Just that style of thinking is just completely different and not giving a crap about what anybody else is doing. It's, like he's just doing his own thing. So, yeah,
0: it's open-minded to all possibilities.
3: She makes me wanna die. <laughs> And follow where Mary goes And cherish the things she knows And says if I change my stride Then I'll fly And she makes me wanna die And change my stride, and then I'll fly. Look to the sun, see me in psychic pollution, and walking on the moon. And how could you dare? And who do you think you are? You're insignificant A small piece An ism No more, no less you try to learn you Conversing universe, you know, it's ironic and smoking hydroponic. She makes me want to die and change my stride. And I fly, and she makes me want to die and follow where Mary goes and cherish the things she knows. As if I change my stride, then I'll fly and change my stride. Bring me in psychic pollution.
0: sort of alternative music history, which I feel like didn't necessarily like go somewhere. No. Or maybe it's manifested into a different kind of music that's influenced.
1: I think he was just doing something that is so difficult to do well. Anybody else that tried it either failed miserably or, you know, I mean, he's got like some fairly typical hip hop samples, like Christian Sands is Dougie Fresh. It's a great groove and it's a great sample. But then the next song samples the specials. Mm. How many people in hip-hop or whatever you want to call it are sampling the specials? What he was trying to do is just such a a difficult and awkward thing for most people to do that I think anyone who was smart was probably just like, yeah, I'm not even going to attempt that. (laughs) It's just way too difficult.
0: You touched a bit on technology and how that's changed. It seems to me that it is a lot harder to be sort of this spontaneous anymore right, with right. the way you assemble music
1: even when people are spontaneous they then second guess themselves yeah. i mean that's i feel like that's a big part of my job these days is to spot when something spontaneous happens and try and reassure people that like it's okay to work with hold that. on to yeah, it yeah it's okay you know because yeah. everyone just assumes like if you haven't played it like five thousand times over and and analyzed it and checked it in pro tools then it can't possibly be good, you know? And it's definitely not the case.
0: I'm sure there are people who have almost that analogue mindset to keep those things going and work with that sort of technology. But it's just so difficult to have a kind of retrospective, sort of purist approach when it's so easy to have things that emulate. Right, I'm sure. The thing that you've got in your racks. When Tricky made this
1: album, this album was made almost entirely with this little Yamaha synth it's kind of a joke to even call it a synth i don't know if you ever saw these they had them in the 90s but it was like an all-in-one sort of sequencer okay it's about as big as your iphone right and it's just got like it doesn't have a proper keyboard it's just like these little keys that you can sort of press with your thumb Mm. and it it basically was like a one-stop like demo writing tool right so you could sit on an airplane yeah and be like, oh, I've got an idea for a... So I'll just do a quick sort of basic piano riff, Mm -hmm. and then you can hit a key and it'll give you a drum beat. Mm -hmm. Then you can pop in a bass line, you know? And a lot of the sounds in there weren't that great. It was like a songwriting tool to do your demos. This is what he's playing the album on. Like all those bass lines, a lot of the keyboard lines and stuff that you're hearing is him playing this little sequencer pocket keyboard thing.
0: Well, that's like um, reading about Marquis Smith making records in the 80s and the early 90s and like putting it onto a walkman so he could actually take it away and listen to it and then coming back into the studio and saying i want to use this version i want to master it off the tape and then going what (laughs) there's at least one full song i think it's paintwork on um this nation's saving grace where you can hear like apparently he had the tape he took it into his hotel he sat on it and you can hear the TV coming through because he's actually recording over <laughs> the master tape of the record, and then it just cuts back to the song, and it sounds amazing. It because it's like an accidental thing, and he's got the foresight to say, "I want to keep that." That's it's like what that, the record is saying. It's like,
1: like that uh, that Chrome album, Half Machine Lip Moves. It's obviously all done on cassette, okay. and there's like halfway through a song, it cuts in with somebody just like checking the the mic over, <laughs> it, and it. It's incredible. It's such an amazing album. But you feel like you're listening to like a collage of these guys' yeah. lives yeah. for whatever, six months or whatever it was. It's incredible.
0: But I think the irony about all of this is that all of those gadgets that were used in the 90s were on the, the road, the technological road that we're on, that we've kind of arrived at, mm-hmm. of having something that does all of those things. Obviously, there wasn't one Box that could do all these things. We have it now. It's an iPhone. Technically, you can record, and edit, and do everything on a phone now. People were trying to innovate in the '90s. You know how you performed and and recorded music. Mm-hmm. That was just where we were at that point. In well, terms that's. Of the um, I mean,
1: that's been happening from the mid '60s all the way up through the '90s. You know, it's that pushing of the of the of the limits of technology that that creates these really really interesting things, all the way up to DJ Shadow and and Tricky, of course. But I do feel that there came a point fairly quickly after that, let's say, middle of the early 2000s, where just the the limitations just stopped. There there are no limitations anymore. And you can literally do anything you want, if not in a phone, at least in a laptop. And do we see a trend of a lack of a creativity? I mean, I personally do.
0: Well, I guess this is a good way to sort of sign off on the conversation. Um, where are we going in that sense? Doing the 90s is such a fascinating way of framing this conversation because you see you know, where the technology was, where it was at that moment and mm-hmm. how people were using it and what it went on to mean for music and production and bands and so on. What is the future? Where are we going with this stuff Any thoughts on that?
1: I think that at the end of the day, what people want to connect with is that vibe, that soulful emotion and of things not being quite so perfect. And I think in the 2000s, we definitely had this period in in music and in creative arts in general where everything is conformed and everything is perfect and, and computerized. And every couple of years or so, you get a band that comes along you know, just like the White Stripes did when suddenly everyone was like, we're sick of this overdone whitewash stuff. Like we just want a real band, you know? And so I think people need to be aware of the technology and what it's capable of. And all that's great. But if you don't have the raw ideas and the emotions Mm. to work with, it doesn't really mean anything. Mm. So I kind of feel like that's what people need to be focusing on.
0: Yeah, we're sort of in dire need of someone to come along and just kind of make the technology not defunct but just the afterthought of the process right which is what it should create of idea yeah exactly arguably we've been relying on the technology too much it's definitely interesting to look back on this earlier time and the way that technology was used there's a sense in this time of like the the future being a bit unknown
1: there was definitely a huge sense of it i mean it was a lot of it was to do with political things mm. socio political reasons, and then of course, the very symbolic turn of the millennium, yeah you know in reality doesn't actually mean anything but it's a it's a huge symbol for people and i do yeah. I remember that time very specifically feeling tense you know a little nervousness about about the future, and I think that album captures that feeling perfectly, yeah, I can listen to that album at any point and go exactly back to 97 and just feel oh god okay yeah i remember what that was like
0: it's almost a little bit funny to look back at that time and think that we were all scared about something happening it's almost the same way there's this don DeLillo book where there's a whole section in the book where he's using this lenny bruce routine about the cuban missile crisis and he's framing this idea that everyone thought there was a nuclear war about to happen because of the cuban missile crisis and how in how much terror people were living at that time and then you look back at it and go well it's kind of a bit silly isn't it but i remember as well you know all our computers are going to break down society society's going to go to bits yeah
1: there's going to be like planes dropping out <laughs> of the sky and on that. i don't know nothing really came of it echoing what we were saying earlier about it being a very international sounding record but one thing that i do think is is an interesting point it it is a very british record in one way look at prince doing 1999 prince's response that's like an american response right this supposed end of the world 2000 it's like yeah let's party you know just go nuts (laughs) go crazy man and then A more British response is, like, tricky, like, no, we're going to do this, like, really miserable, dark, doomy album and, like, yeah, we're all going down with this ship, so fuck
0: it. It's the end, (laughs) end of times. Well, that's probably how we'll all be when the apocalypse does eventually come.